Well, good morning, y'all. How we doing? Happy fall. Oh, these 80 degrees. I mean, come on now. I'll take it. Boo. We want to wear sweaters. I did get my Clarks out. It's officially fall, winter season uh, when I start wearing Clarks because these are not comfortable and uh, wearing them in the summer is miserable. So we're here. We're doing it. Uh, we thought we'd even leave the windows open just to get uh, some, some more light, as much vitamin D as we possibly can before the seasonal, you know, you know it hits. So uh, thanks for being here. We are, as you can see, starting uh, a new book of the Bible. If uh, you've been a part of Contrast for, uh, for a while, you know that we like to take our time through books of the Bible. Uh, we spent two years in Matthew, went through every verse, and it was great. And uh, as we started to kind of prepare for this rest of this calendar year, uh, I thought it'd be really cool if you had been a part of Matthew and then even a part of now John, that you've basically heard every teaching or story about Jesus. Um, because John is one of the four gospel accounts of Jesus, the four stories of Jesus, and uh, John is really unique. And so there's a lot of things in John that aren't in the other three that are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic gospels, which means in sync, similar. And so those are, they have a lot of stories they share and things like that. But John is just sort of like, you know, John's like the youngest of four brothers who just like runs off on his own path, you know. Everyone else is coloring in the lines, and John somehow found paint, and it's everywhere. That's basically what it feels like to read John. So uh, I'm excited to teach on it and talk about it for the next few months. Uh, we'll be going from now basically until Easter. Uh, and then you're like, Easter, yeah, that's next year. Uh, and then taking a little break for Christmas as we celebrate Advent and all that. But uh, So if you want to turn your Bibles to the book of John, you're going to be in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We'll be starting... Uh, in verse 1, and I, I would actually like to start doing this for John. If you'd stand while I read the word here. Well, I'm going to be in the NET, um, but whatever version you have is totally fine, or if you're on your phones. We're going to have it on the screen, um, but I'll read it here. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. The Word was with God in the beginning. All things were created by him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. And the light shines on in the darkness, but the darkness has not overmastered it, has not mastered it. You can go ahead and have a seat. Amen to that. So as we read the first few verses, um, I kind of want to, I just want to take a moment and back up. Um, when we talk about a book of the Bible, maybe you've done some research when you read the Bible. Maybe you just kind of open it up, read it at face value, which is totally fine. Um, but we have to remember one really important guiding principle when we read the Bible is the Bible is written for us, but it's not written to us. Uh, so when you read it, what that means is we obviously pull a lot of beliefs and beautiful things out of the Bible. We believe that the Holy Spirit can, um, can speak to us through the Bible, right? Uh, but you also remember that it was not written in 2023, which is why you won't find anything about social media or your iPhone or uh, how to handle the political atmosphere of America, right? Uh, back then, it was very different politically. So what we have to do is we have to take the Bible and to our best knowledge, you know, and I'm not saying you've got to learn two new languages or anything like that, but uh, sometimes it's important to study it at a deeper level and, and kind of bring up about, um, you know, a lot of different things, like maybe the, what we call the historical context, meaning what was happening in history at this time. And that's why if you hear me teach, it's very rare that I'll go several weeks without talking about the Romans 
or uh, you know, the religious leaders like the Pharisees, Sadducees, these Jewish leaders, because they're, they are completely surrounding the cultural understanding, the laws, everything that we know in the first century. Now, if you, if you notice, we don't, we're not really subjugated by Romans anymore, so we have to take what it was meaning then and then translate it to how we live now um, in a democracy, supposedly, uh, and then the rest of the world, right? So that's how we think about it when we read the scripture, but John, it's also important to know a couple other things about it, and so today, uh, I don't want to say forgive me, but it's going to feel a little bit more heady today, because as we spend the next several weeks in John, we'll be dissecting different stories and things uh, in that nature, but today I want to talk about a, a couple things that are going to set the course for the entire book, so I promise you it's worth it. Uh, just try to, stay, try to stay in it here with me. Uh, and so the first thing I want to talk about, which maybe you haven't even considered, is the authorship of the book. Who wrote the book of John? Now, I know you're like, Trey, I know the answer. It's on the screen. It's John. Uh, you are correct. It is a John. Um, but it is up for a decent amount of debate of which John it was. The traditional accounts would say that it's John, son of Zebedee, who is one of the 12 disciples. So Jesus has 12 disciples. John is one of them. Uh, John is in the 12 as probably, you know, the, kind of what we see in the book of John, this emotional, creative. He's the only one who sticks by Jesus' side at the cross. All the other disciples run away and hide behind doors, and John's right there. Um, and so there's, there's, there's a pretty strong argument and compelling reasons for why, we, that, why they believe it's uh, John, um, the disciple. There's another John that is probably more popular in the eastern side of the world, um, and even parts of uh, Canada and stuff. More the, the UK and, and uh, America are more common on the first view. Uh, but the rest of the world um, sometimes takes the stance of what, what we, we call John the Elder. John the Elder is uh, what we know of him, lived a little bit later. So and maybe end of first century, anywhere from like maybe 70, 80 to like 130, 140 into the second century. And the timing of that has to deal with when we think the book was written. Um, I'm going to tell you, and you're probably like, why are you telling us both? You know, is there an answer? Uh, I will tell you that my personal um, opinion is that I believe it's John the Apostle, the, the traditional historical account, uh, for a lot of different reasons. I'm not going to get into all those. If you want to get nerdy and have a nice coffee conversation, I could be happy to talk to you and point you to a million books. Uh, but I believe it's just John the Disciple, which makes it very simple for us when we're reading it throughout the next several weeks, because you can just think John, one of the 12, not some John who is a little bit ambiguous of who it might be. Uh, but anyway, so John, but then we get into then the dating, or like when the book was written, and, and you might think, why does dating really matter? I have this whole book of books in front of me, how did the, you know, but have you ever wondered, man, how did all these get put in here? Maybe you were raised Catholic, and you're like, I don't know about you, but their Bible's a little bit bigger than ours, like what happened there, right? Uh, and so, the, you know, there's a lot to that, but what we call the Bible, we call it, you know, it being canonized. Canonized is basically just, like, the, the integrity behind how it was put together in the Bible that we have today. So John, um, the dating of it matters a lot, because if a book was dated, you know, 700 years after it happened, there's a lot more that could happen to it, a lot more opinions could be put into it, it might go through several manuscript rewritings and people change things, right? So the, the earliest accounts, that's important in how long it's been dated. John... Unfortunately, it's also being argued upon being anywhere from pre-70 AD, so maybe like 50 or 60 AD, the whole way to like 130 uh, AD, which is a very large window. Um, and a lot of it has to do with uh, a significant event in history that we know of as the fall of Jerusalem. So in Jesus dies 33 to 35 AD, depending on you know, where you look in that. 70 AD, so about 35 years later, and the entire Jerusalem is just destroyed. The temple destroyed. 
uh, everybody's taken captive. I remember one time I was teaching and saying that there's a chance some of the Pharisees who were, uh, who were listening to Jesus saying, like, you're going to be taken away, were taken away and enslaved as gladiators in Rome. Like, isn't that crazy to think about? Uh, and so in 70 AD, it just destroyed, and there's strong, not even biblical understanding of it, but historical evidence of this happening. Rome takes it over. Uh, and that was a massive moment for not only Jews, but also Christians at that point, because they had been around for about 35 years, and they're trying to figure out how to do all this. And so the reason why the dating is kind of on that event is because uh, scholars are trying to figure out, was John writing to these people after this or writing to people before this? And so depending on where you're reading John, you can kind of see different themes. Um, I take the stance of it being earlier, before uh, pre-70 AD, for a couple different reasons, but it also has to do with the fact that I also think it was uh, one of the 12 disciples, John, who wrote John. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, you could say, like, does this, why does this matter? Does it really matter? And some of this stuff, maybe not so much, right? Like, maybe they did write in 60 AD, maybe they wrote in 110, whatever. But I would argue that this has a lot of uh, implications on how I read and teach the text to you guys and how you read and how you understand it. Um, and maybe you've been in webs of, of friends or family who are agnostic, atheists, or, or skeptical, and they're just like poking holes, and you're like, I don't know, I just read the Bible and trust what it says, right? And so for a lot of us, like, this matters because I want to give you guys confidence. I also believe that you're educated people, right? Like, we live in America where most of us had to get through high school and have some, we can read, you know, most of us. Uh, and so, like, we have to be able to, like, own this, right, ourselves as adults and not just maybe we've inherited faith from our parents or family, and so this is important for us to take ownership of that. Uh, but now I want to get into the last part, and then we'll kind of jump into the passage, uh, which is purpose. So it's important to know why is John writing this book to these people, not to us, right, to these people. Fortunately, this is the easiest one, because in John 20, 31, which is like at the end of John, uh, you don't have to turn there, but it, it says literally, but these are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's an easy one, right? We got that one. No, no controversy there for the most part when the author literally says this is why I wrote it, which is helpful because not, not every book has that. Uh, but G, uh, John is going to focus a ton on the genuine humanity of Jesus, Jesus being a human who walked this earth, who was real, who was human, who experienced human pain, happiness, hardship, all of that, but also was God and also is uh, the salvation of our, of our, our spiritual lives for eternity. Um, and so I want to get into that a little bit. Uh, but the last thing that I think is really cool, if I was just fanboy John for a little bit, um, he is a literary genius. Some of you maybe appreciate grammar. That was my weakest subject. Uh, I still hate it. Like, I, it's funny that I, I struggled writing papers in college and masters. Like, I just couldn't do it. And then now I took a job where I write a 12-page paper every single week. Uh, fortunately, you don't have to proofread it. So if you did, it would be rough. Uh, but, uh, but I can appreciate the literary genius that John has. Like I said, he's an immense creative. And so John, throughout this entire book that we read, like 21 chapters, I believe, uh, he's weaving in different symbols and things throughout the book to create this greater narrative. It's kind of like if you watched Lord of the Rings or Star Wars and you watched all of them at once, if you could do that uh, a long time, and you just start to see all of these themes and things that you get when you watch the whole series as opposed to just one movie, right? There's like traces of things and other things die out or new things start, right? It's the same way if you read the whole book of John. And so what the major, impressive, cool thing that I want us to focus on, and we'll talk about the next several months, is what we call the sevens. 
the sevens are um, pieces that he put in the book because the, the, uh, the number seven in this culture meant perfection. It meant um, completeness is probably the best way to describe it. Uh, so like if you were grading a test and you like got a seven, we typically would think, oh, seven out of 10, not good. But seven in their culture, was it meant perfect. It meant good, complete, full integrity. And so what John does is he has three sevens. If you go back to the um, uh, title slide, John, sorry, I think I put you on the spot. Uh, if you go back to the title slide, there's seven uh, triangles that way, seven triangles this way. The seven triangles that way signify uh, the, the discourses or teachings. So there will be seven chunks of Jesus' teaching that all inform different things about Jesus. And then there's going to be seven signs, or we call miracles, healings, casting out demons, things like that, that are also in the book of John. And they all culminate around the seventh resurrection, which is the, the resurrection of Jesus. He also includes seven I am statements, which are what Jesus says, I am uh, the bread of life, I am the light of the world, the gate for the sheep, the good shepherd. And it's seventh time he says the, the, the seventh one is when, when he says it, he's being taken to the cross. He's being taken by the, the Roman sort of posse with the Pharisees. And when he says it, they all fall on their knees. It's a moment we miss in most of the stories. It's only recorded in John. But the seventh time he says it is like this full culmination of just how powerful Jesus is. And all, everyone falls on their knees terrified. And then Jesus is like, okay, you can get up and arrest me now. Just wanted you to know that I'm in control here. Uh, so it's really cool when you read John. We're going we're gonna to key in on a lot of these and kind of talk about, hey, we're you know, one of these today and, and the beauty of that. But I just wanted you to know that like, John is not just wasting words here. Every word has, has incredible meaning. And I believe that you can read the, Bible, the John at face value and pull out some crazy awesome things. But I also think the ability of me to teach this is going to do some of the extra work that maybe you wouldn't want to do or can't do and helping you really understand the depth of this. So, John 1, 1 through 5, here we go. Uh, this passage is, has some, like, so much to it. I'm going to try to cover as much as I can, as best I can, but I can literally teach on this passage probably for 10 weeks in a row. I'm not going to torture you uh, through that. So today we're going to focus on just some of the key words in here. First one is you see, in the beginning. In the beginning, might sound familiar to you. If you go to the first page of your Bible, in Genesis, it says, in the beginning. Now, two different languages, but the same meaning, in the beginning. The word Genesis, Genesis, it basically means in the beginning. That's what it means. Uh, and so any Jewish listener listening to John's uh, account of Jesus, in the beginning, you're like, interesting, interesting. And so what John is alluding to is, hey, I want to explain to you like the cre this creation, then there's this creation, there's another creation. And we think about, okay, what's happening here? And so he's inferring there's like a new beginning, a new creation. And then he goes to use this phrase, the word. If you notice, um, the word is capitalized in your Bible, D capital, capital W, right, which implies some things. Uh, but you're like, what does it mean in the beginning was the word, you know? Uh, was there one word, two? How many words was there? Uh, what does this actually mean? Uh, but the word, the word, the phrase the word is translated logos in, uh, in Greek, which is what it would be written to in, in John, uh, and it means basically audible words. So uh, it has a, a, a deeper definition to it, but at, at base level, it just means audible words. And so I love what Tim Mackey says about this. Um, he says, words are distinct from a person, meaning like the way you talk, the words you say, uh, but they are an embodiment of that person's thoughts, their mind, and their will. So if you just think about this, you know, the Bible talks a lot about the tongue and the words and how powerful they are, but it's not what, what uh, comes out of the person, defiles them, right? What comes in, because what comes in informs what comes out. And you know this. So if you think a mean thing, you can think that mean thing and really no one know. 
But once you've let it out, right, and you say some choice words on the interstate, then people know you're mad, right? I was beside a girl yesterday, backed up at 315 because they had it shut down. And, and I don't even know what happened, but I was in the, like, the turning lane going here. She was here, and she just had her finger up the whole time for the person in front of her with her horn just held on. And I, I was like, I think you're going to like lose your horn juice or whatever. I don't know. Like, I was like, this is so long. And I'm just sitting here like, what do I do? I was like trying to be pastoral. I'm like, should I like open the window? Like, Are you OK? Like, I don't know what's going on here. Um, but yes, her action, right, and our, a lot of times our words portray what we are embodying inside. And so what John is getting at is saying, in the beginning, we know God created the heavens and the earth and all this stuff, right? In the beginning, God used his words to show his embodiment of his mind, his will, his heart, right? He used his words, and he spoke things into existence. Through his very words, the power of those words spoke things into existence. John is saying, hey, God spoke the word in the beginning. But the word here is capitalized because the word that he's referring to is what we'll see next week is the word became flesh, the word dwelt among us, the word took up residence in us, and that word is actually, spoiler, it's Jesus, so that's why it's capitalized, right? It's showing reverence to Jesus. The word is another name for Jesus. A little churchy, but that's what it's saying. And so what John is saying is, hey, since creation, there's been this word, uh, this, this audible expression, this distinct expression of God, the creator, in the person Jesus. So there's two things that he says about this word that's important for us. The first one is that he says later, the word was with God. So this implies if you have God, let's just... If you just didn't know anything about God, the Trinity, any of that, you just have God, the creator, is up here. He creates earth and all that stuff and humans. But it says the word was with God. So you're like, okay, well, then is there two things happen? Like, is the God here, and this is like his little henchman, right, who, like, does his stuff and whatever, right? But then the very next line says the word was fully God. Some translations just say God, but the net wanted to let you know that the, the implication here is fully God, and that implies that there's divineness. It's not just partly divine, meaning kind of a little bit of God, semi-God, demi-God. It's fully God. So God in the beginning, creating, but then there's a with God, but also this is God. So what do we got going on here? We got two gods. This is where we start to get um, an understanding of what we call the Trinity. Um, to just summarize this really, really briefly for you. The Trinity is what we believe about God. We believe God is one God. And three unique persons. What that means is God the Father, which is primarily what you see God of the Old Testament, God the Son, Jesus, and then God the Holy Spirit, or the, the Spirit, the Holy Ghost, as some would say. We don't like the word ghost because it's spooky, so we don't, we don't use that. Uh, the Holy Ghost, right? Uh, but all three of those are not each other but are God, which is very confusing. Uh, I could spend a lot of time on that, but I'm not. But right now, what we're seeing is two of the three persons in the Trinity, not parts, because part, it would imply separation, um, but persons in the Trinity. And we see that John is saying Jesus has been there since the beginning before any of it. Jesus was there. He was present. And this is why in, in, in Genesis 1, when you read it, it says, let us make humankind in our image, which is a plural understanding. And it's a poor understanding that implies the same level. Like, he's not like all of us. It's ours, and it's a personal level of God the Father and Jesus. So this is important because, you know, this is what we believe about God. A lot of religions fight back against Jesus being God, right? Or, be, or he's under God the Father, right? And so these type of things do matter. But what John wants us to communicate is that God the Father wanted to share his voice with us, and he did that through the person of Jesus. 
And Jesus is still fully God, but he embodies the personal life of who we are. And that's what that'll be next week, that he became flesh. He became one of us. He became a person that we can understand and see and, uh, and the beauty of that. So we get to, uh, we get to understand Jesus is like before creation. And, and I think it's important for us to understand just how big of a deal this is. Because, you know, to us it's like, okay, so he was just chilling. And then God's like, all right, like a parachute drop. You know, I was like, all right, you're in. Like jump out of the plane, you know. Uh, it's, it's a, it can be a little bit confusing, but that's because we have to uh, mentally sometimes separate our earthly selves with our spiritual selves. They both have a lot of coexistence, right? But there's a reality that our eternal bodies will pass away. Every one of us will die, not to be negative on a Sunday, but we all will die. Um, and, but there's a spiritual reality in our lives that has the ability to live for eternity. And so that's the tension we play with here. And so Colossians 1 talks a little bit about Christ being first and the power of him over all time. It says this, it says, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn before all creation. For all things in heaven and on earth were created by him. All things, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and all things are held together in him. You see the similarity that John is doing with Colossians. Colossians is obviously written later, but this beauty of seeing Jesus as this God in our lives who has immense power and importance. Um, Now, one of the the things that we read that's important about uh, the Bible is we have to think about, like I said, the time period that's being written. And one of the things that's really important, and this is where scholars get in massive fun arguments about is, is John writing to correct something that was happening at that time? Meaning, was there a belief that was going a little bit, uh, shall I say, cattywampus, and uh, was just starting to veer off into its own thing, and it was becoming dangerous, heretical, right, all that. Is he countering that? Is he just continuing to preach like the truth in the way that they should all believe? And, and so there's a little bit of debate up for that, but there's two things that I think John is correcting that I think I, you could find a strong case for. Um, and the reason why I want to talk about these is not because I think they're necessarily super prevalent today, but I don't know about you, but nothing has changed in 2,000 years about faulty ways of thinking about God. <laughs> so even though these two might be a little bit, um, have died out, there's still f- plenty of things that, we be- that people believe, choose to believe about Jesus. They take his truth and they add a little bit of themselves into it, and there you go, right? One degree off is a lot after a while. And so the two things uh, that, they were, that, that was commonly um, brought up in circles, the first one was what we call Gnosticism. Um, maybe you've heard that word, maybe you haven't, but I'm just going to simplify. Gnosticism was basically the idea that not, there was not one God at the center of it all, but inferior creator of the world, typically called what we call a demiurge, which is kind of like a smaller God. And they, they found salvation not in Jesus, but in the awakening of knowledge to their original divine identity. If you listen to that phrase, there's several religions right now that that is essentially their end, is awakening divineness of identity. Uh, they also believe that all things were inherently evil. You know, we believe that the fall of sin caused evil, but they would believe that everything is evil and it's, it's this chaos that must be controlled. So there's a, a quite a different level of thinking there. And then the second thing was kind of a subcategory under this, and this is what's called docetism. And this is wild, but basically people were going around believing that Christ did not have a real or natural body during his life on earth. They believed that it was an apparent or what you would describe as a phantom one, which phantom is, like I said, ghost. It's like spooky Halloween costume. But what it means is like he wasn't really real. It was like a, 
either like it looked, he looked real or like he was, but he wasn't really human. And so he didn't experience suffering, pain, any of that. He was God among us, but he wasn't really us. He was very separate, which you'll notice is why John next week literally says Jesus became flesh. Um, but these levels of thinking were common in this time, and they didn't really become formalized till probably later in the second century, but this wave of thinking started to happen. And you know this in the church, right? You go to different churches, and they have things that they've moved or adjusted, and some of those we'd say are totally within the bounds of what we call orthodoxy or right thinking. Some of them way off, right? So it's important that we know these type of things because we understand why is John writing and why does it matter, and then obviously for our own sake and our own faith, it matters. Because some of us uh, have inherited, like, kind of like think of like a suitcase, you know, you grow up and your family starts to throw clothes in there as you, as you grow up and you get older, and, um, and then you carry on that suitcase everywhere you go, and now you're becoming an adult, and you're like, I never packed any of this. Like, I didn't choose any of these clothes. My mom put like 20 pairs of underwear in here. Like, why, what do I do with that, right? And so you're having to now open your suitcase and take a trip to H&M, if you, if you will, or Target maybe, or uh, I don't know, wherever you shop. Even, honestly, Amazon, Costco, that's my jam now. Right? Costco clothes are great. And you're like, I'm going to start putting some of this in and taking some of this out because I'm a grown adult now and I can make my own decisions, right? Uh, but some of us have inherited bad thinking. Some of us have inherited great thinking that needs to be refined. I'm not saying you've got to throw it all out. Some of you have inherited nothing. You don't even have a suitcase. Um, or you've, you've stuffed whatever you wanted when you were younger, and you're like, what does all this mean? So this matters because we're helping you form what we believe to be a truth-honoring, Jesus-centered suitcase of clothes, if you will. And these type of things matter because people are going to push back against the truth of Jesus in a lot of different ways. You know, back then it was Gnosticism and Docetism, and even I would say humanism. Humanism is probably just as popular today as it was then. Humanism is the idea that I just need to be a good person, and if I'm a good person, whatever is at the end will be given to me. Um, and then you just get into the argument of what is good and what is bad, because that is cultural. It does not blend across all barriers and cultures. If you've ever been to the Middle East or you've been to uh, even the areas of Asia, you would know that what they deem as good is not what we deem as good and vice versa. So that is a massive wave of thinking. So we have to, how do we combat that, right? So this is why this kind of stuff matters. I'm not trying to just be overly smart with you and like impress you or anything like that. I'm trying to help you feel confident uh, that what you're learning, have been taught, or are being taught matters and has value in the way we see scripture. So on to the next uh, couple verses, it says, all things were created by him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has not been created. So that's John 1.3. Then if we read Colossians 1.17 again, it says, all things were created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and all things are held together in him. If you notice, they're very similar. Because it's pointing to this sense that Jesus is not only the creator of our physical lives and our spiritual self, but also the sustainer. And that's the, the created aspect, which is the physical body that we have, right? Well, here on earth, we can see, touch, feel, right? Uh, but also the spiritual life that will pass on far past our physical lives. And so he's not only the creator, he's also the sustainer. And how we are sustained is what John is, is just zoning in on, this idea of belief and salvation in Christ. Uh, and so the, the, from three to four, um, I think it's better read. I'm going to kind of shift a little bit because of the way the grammar is. But it says, all things were created by him and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created, comma, what has been made in him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. The light shines on in the darkness, but the darkness has not mastered it. 
So John moves on from general creation, right, like all things being created through him, to specifically humans and the human experience that we have. And he says, what has been made in him was life. If you were, um, you know, a word nerd and you love studying words, John uses the word life 36 times. It is more than any other author in the New Testament. The second competing book, if you will, is Revelation, uses it 17 times. So literally double the amount of times. The book of Revelation we think of as like, oh, the end, and like where we're going to go, and what's going to happen. And it only has 17 times it says the word life. John is far more concerned about life. If you want to know about life and life to the fullest, you read the book of John. And he says it several times. I'll just give you some illustrations. He says he came that people might have life and have it more abundantly. He says that he died so people might have everlasting life. That's John 3.16. He gave his flesh for the life of the world, John 6. Only those who eat his flesh, drink his blood, have life, John 6.53. That's talking about the Lord's Supper. Uh, when he gives life, people perish no more, John 10. He said that the power he has to lay down his life, he can take it up again, John 10. And he does just that. Uh, as Lord of life, he raises Lazarus in, in John uh, tw 11. Twice he said that he is the life, chapter 11 and 14. And he says the basic source of all life is the Father, God the Father, who has life in himself, but the Father grants the Son to also have life in himself. And that's in John 5. And this leads us to what we read in the Selah time with Nick, the last verse of Psalm uh, 36, verse 9 says, For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. And that's what John is actually focusing on. He's focusing on this psalm, and he's kind of bringing it into this beautiful um, section that we're reading. And so he's communicating Jesus is not only the life bringer, but he's also the light bearer. And so however excited, you know, we, a lot of people love to study the phrase, the word, right? It's hard to say the word, the word, but uh, that phrase is only used four times in John. It's used in the first chapter, and that's it. So the word, the word, the phrase, the word, is not uh, as important as, it is, as life, 36 times, and also light is, is like dozen or more times. Christ is the light of the world in John 8. He's come into the world as the light, John 12. Anyone who follows him will never walk in darkness but have the light of life, John 8. People urged to believe in the light, John 12. He gave life and light to Lazarus in chapter 9. Uh, God, re God recorded the first words of Genesis, sorry, let there be light. And in this chapter, the word is the source of light. Are you starting to see how it's all kind of coming together here? John is, is showing that since the creation of the world, and as you know it, Jesus was present there. He was very much involved there. Everything has been put through him and for him, and he will sustain all of that. I love what one of the scholars, Leon Morris, said. He said, all the light that we have, whether we walk in it or turn our backs on it, we owe to the words, to Jesus. And what I love about the way he communicates this is because he's not saying whether we walk in it or don't see it. Because light, as we know, once it's there, you can't deny it. You can close your eyes for a while. But even then, when you close your eyes, you can still tell there's light in the room, right? Uh, you, you can't, you, you just, it's whether or not you want to acknowledge it's there or not. It's there. And for many of us who are struggling with belief, we, we, you know, we, we, we believe the lie that like, Jesus is not very close. He's far away. He's up in the clouds or whatever. He's not present. He doesn't even care. Or maybe I don't deserve to have him close to my life, right? I've done a bunch of things, and I keep doing things, and I'm like, my life's a mess. I come here with all you pretty folk, and you all look pretty, and you look great, and your life's put together, and I'm not that, right? Now, I, get, I wear a collared shirt up here because it's just like a, I don't know, I'm just old-fashioned. But trust me, my life is not perfect. If you go into my basement right now, you'll be like, this guy's got some serious storage problems. Uh, but we all have stuff, right? We all have, like, 
sin in our lives, some of the stuff has been habitual sin we've been battling maybe our whole lives, or uh, some of us have had trauma that's been done to us that we didn't even ask for nor deserve, and we're dealing with that. Some of us are recently in new relationships or new job, or we moved, or we're feeling insecure in certain areas, and we're numbing, we're lashing out, we're disillusioned, right? We're trying to figure out how to even be political in the political sphere that we're in without it just being ridiculous, right? More so, we're trying to go to our family's Thanksgiving dinner and not create a fight, right? Like, there's so many levels of our lives that we're just trying to figure it out. And Leon Morris is like, look, no matter what, good or bad, the light is there. You can either choose to acknowledge it or you can turn your back on it, but it's still there and you owe it to Jesus regardless. And that's why, you know, sometimes you'll hear the prayer like, Jesus, thank you for even this very breath, right? Every breath is a gift. And sometimes it sounds a little like, okay, that's a lot. Like, okay, thanks, Jesus, for this one. Thanks, Jesus, for this next one. Like, it sounds a little, like, ridiculous, right? But it is a reminder that literally every breath is a gift. Many of us know that life, we don't get to plan it. We don't even get to plan it. I mean, most of us are like, I'd love to just fall, die in my sleep when I'm 95 or with my family around me. They all made the flights in. Everything was good. You know, it doesn't happen. Very rarely does that happen. Some of us die painfully. Some of us die early, earlier than we want. Uh, and we've experienced that in our lives, right? But all of that has the ability to be brought back to Jesus, the life giver and the life sustainer. And so we know the physical life here is not going to last. And so what do we do with our eternal selves? And many of you have experienced the, the sort of uh, the touching down of the spiritual and the physical. Like maybe you've had a spiritual experience, really hard for you to explain. Maybe you've seen other people's lives. Maybe you've had prayers answered that you just can't even... You just can't even, like, fathom, right? Uh, we had someone pray a prayer earlier last week that of service something would happen, and it, it happened exactly. And there's, like, little glimpses of that, and you're just like, this is a lot of coincidences. After a while, it doesn't feel like coincidence anymore. It feels like something's really happening, right? And maybe you're, like, still skeptical, and you're still picking it up as coincidence. That's fine. But I promise you, if you stick around and you, you read through John, you're going to realize that John's goal is for you to have a life abundantly, and this isn't like prosperity. You're going to have lots more money and more cars because that's abundance that's great. I talked to a guy yesterday. He's a friend, and he's got like five cars, and, and you know, which is like, wow, five cars. Man, he can just pick whatever he wants to drive, right? And he's like, dude, it's ridiculous. He's like, when I got to do an oil change, I got to do five oil changes. You realize how much of a waste of a day that is? And I was like, yeah, that sounds terrible. Uh, and so abundant is not just more things because we know that sometimes abundance is not good. Most times, probably not but that it's abundance in the sense of our human selves being fully in the path that God has created and designed for us to be. It doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. It doesn't mean we're not going to suffer, <coughs> insert Jesus' life, but that we believe that this is what promotes true joy, and it's joy not just on earth, but for eternity in heaven. And that is where the light comes in. So as we wrap up, and Nick uh, comes up to transition us here, the light shines on in the darkness. If you're a grammar nerd, um, this is a good week for you. You're, you're getting a lot of good stuff here. Uh, but you'll notice everything before that was in past tense. If you read the scriptures again, it says the word was with God, was fully God, was with God in the beginning, were created, was created, that has been created, life was the light. And then it says, and the light shines on in the darkness. And you're like, wait a second, that's not past tense. That's present kind of future, right? I think both. Uh, it's different. So why is it different? And John is communicating that all of this stuff that has happened since creation, Jesus' power is still shining today. And this is where we get the Holy Spirit, the idea that Jesus' Spirit is with us. If we choose to follow him, that he's residing not only in us but around us, 
helping encourage us, helping speak truth in our life, helping rebuke us from sin, helping um, us have wisdom and courage in, in situations, right? Like, all these cool things, giving us the power of the Spirit, of Jesus' Spirit in our lives, and that is the very light that shines in on the darkness. I think about um, our name, Contrast Church. Some people, if you haven't been in the living room or um, our one-on-one class, or you haven't been around a while, people are like, why the name Contrast? You know, it's kind of an interesting name. Why the logo, right? Um, and when we first decided to plant Contrast Church, it wasn't Contrast at the time, and we just knew it was going to be in Grandview, I was reading through the book of John like a ton, and I was like, man, there's so many instances of light in here. I just love the idea of the light and darkness kind of paradox. Um, and, and so I was sleeping one night, and I, had a, I kept having like recurring dreams. I'm not necessarily a big dreamer. I guess that you always dream. It's whether or not you remember it. I, don't, I rarely remember dreams. Um, and I kept having this dream of like people walking down a street, maybe outside, with like light and dark kind of on their face, almost like in shadows. Um, but it wasn't like a shadow from a building. It was just the shadow of like where they were walking. And uh, some people were fully lit up. Some people were fully in darkness. Some people like had this sort of contrasting like middle, middle ground. And it was, I was kind of starting to think about like, man, this idea of like what if contrast would be a contrasting light of Jesus to people in their lives. So that when people see your life, and doesn't mean that you're always like smiling when life sucks, but that the way you see life, the way that you believe it, and you put that into action, the way that you love people is just completely different than the darkness of the world. And I thought, that sounds like we could do that. <laughs> and so that's where contrast came from. If you, if you fill out a go deeper thing that Adam had mentioned, we always sign that verse. 1 John 1.5 and John 1.5 are almost the same verse, which is kind of interesting that John did that. But it basically says, God is light, and in him there's no darkness. And in this one it says, the light shines on in the darkness, but the darkness has not mastered it. Mastered is past tense in some ways, and what it's implying is that the light will always win. We know the end. We have understood the score. We know who wins. We don't even have to place bets because of it. And we know that the, the darkness will never master or comprehend, is another word, or have dominion over the light. So all we got to do is just acknowledge it. And so that's what John invites us into, is the idea of belief is just acknowledging what's already in front of you, that Jesus is present in your life, that he loves you, that he died for your sins and the darkness that you've chosen, um, and that uh, the act of repentance turning from, right, walking towards Jesus in the light is the act of freedom and salvation. And so as you ponder that over the next several weeks, you know, John's going to really pinpoint that. Uh, but to sum up, I would just say this, if you were like to sum up everything today, the word, the living truth, Jesus himself, is the life and light of the world. He's the king over darkness in your life and in the community of believers as well, giving us power in his name. So I wanted to wrap up. You know, I, I didn't, uh, I was thinking about, man, like life and light. And Contrast Church, I, I feel like one of the cool things about being the pastor is I get to see it happen all the time. Like some of you maybe don't know certain people and you're not around other people. And I feel like what's cool is I do get a lot of the dirt, but I get a lot of like the beauty from the ashes as well. I get to be in front row seat. We get to have people come up here and tell their stories. And I promise you, in the last three years, there's uncountable amounts of life and light because of Jesus. And uh, I don't even have time to tell the stories because there's just so many. I'm not just being, you know, I'm not just messing. Like, there's just so many stories of people finding freedom, marriages being restored, people's mental health being challenged and worked through. 
um, addictions being like just fought and, and man, like finding freedom in that. There's just been so many really cool things and I don't have enough time to tell them all, but if you stick around long enough, we try to get them up, people up on stage almost every week talking about that. Um, because this isn't a joke, this isn't a game, this isn't a facade, this is real life, real life is hard. And there are people here, and most of you, I hope, are taking steps in seeing light and life in your life. And uh, I just encourage you to stick around. You're going to see it. Uh, and we're not perfect. I'm not perfect for sure, but thank God that Jesus knows that and has done something about it. So as we transition from uh, a teaching here, we like to do what's called time of formation. And this is the goal of this is just to not let you just sit and, and, and retain, but to actually act out and to be formed into Jesus. And so we have four ways you can do that. There's a prayer team in the back who'd love to pray for you about anything and everything. They'll keep it anonymous. They're not going to share it on uh, the Google chat now. They won't do that. Um, there's, uh, there's also, you know, just the ability for you just to sit and reflect. We encourage you just to take some time before you're on to your next thing, your meal, your Sunday, whatever. Just sit and reflect on what has been worshipped, what has been spoken through the word, through my words, right? Like, just reflecting in that. Uh, we also believe that giving is an act of worship and obedience. That's what we call it, bringing, because we're not giving anything that God hasn't already given us, so we're bringing back a portion of what is his. Uh, and then lastly, we have the bread and cup in the front and in the back. It's grape juice and gluten-free matzah, which is authentic. Uh, and uh, that's just a reminder of what Jesus sacrificed, his, his bones broken, his blood spilled for us, for our sins, and so we offer that every Sunday as a reminder of that. And so if you believe in that, you believe in the sacrifice Jesus made, you can come up at any point during the next uh, little bit or worship and take that as just a reminder. So we're going to give you a little bit of space to do all those things, and then we're going to close in one more song. We'll wrap up. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.